Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about Paris. That's why you can listen to this episode in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this Paris guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge and you can get any question about Paris answered by real people right here. The best way to visit the Eiffel Tower, how to use the metro, where to find an absolutely beautiful brasserie right now in any neighborhood. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Circa. In this episode, we will be listing a lot of music, artists and venues in the French capital. There will be maps, notes, and info on the places mentioned in this episode in the Circa app, as well as all the other full guide episodes to this wonderful city, including fashion, food, art, and architecture. So whether you're a true aficionado or don't know your mingos from your miles, you're in the right place. This is what we do. Grab your instrument of choice and let's take a stroll through the effortlessly jazzy streets of Paris. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, four. Circa, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. In Paris, somewhere in Montmartre, the picturesque hill which overlooks the city there is a little musical oddity definitely worth checking out. On Rue du Poteau at number 68, after your visit to the Sacré-Cœur, Montmartre's Grand Basilica, you will find a tiny museum nestled into the leafy streets of the area. A museum of sorts. It's more of an insane shop, with that old store smell, and it specializes in rare jazz records, artifacts, and stories. Mostly from owner Alain Marquet, who opened this place in 2009. Just a warning, you may be there talking with him for a while. And even then, he might not be prepared to sell any of his rarities to you, even though they are, technically, all for sale. That's how much he loves them. A freak jazz collector who ran out of space in his apartment and had no choice but to rent some space in his neighborhood, Alain has such an incredible collection of rare LPs and memorabilia from Bix Betterbeek, Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, and everything in between. 
Gypsy jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt's family once raided Alain's shop for rare pressings of their own grandfather's music, which they could not find anywhere else. Oh, also, this is Alain playing clarinet with Jazz à Bichon. Paris has a jazz obsession that is personified here. And if you go to his store, Alain will tell you all about it. Trust me. This obsession with jazz was fused forever with the cool of the city when their new wave cinema exploded in the late 50s, but it goes back four decades before that. America birthed jazz, but Paris? Paris raised that baby to be an artist in the eyes of the world. Paris made jazz cinematic. Showy, smart, loud and political, jazz moved through the city in a deep blue wave. A wave whose ripples can still be felt, seen, jived and bopped to in the underground caverns, the hip, well-cocktail clubs. There's also incredible plush concert venues and face-melting jam sessions and almost year-round jazz and blues festivals. The French capital not only raised jazz, but in the end, she raised him well. Since the 1920s, Jazz has wailed through the arrondissement. Louis Armstrong, Sidney Bechet, Charlie Parker, Duke Ellington and Miles Davis are just a few of the incredible American musicians who left their mark on Paris. This is a story of the known and the unknowns of the city. The origin and the future of an art form that remains niche and underground, but is as iconic, fearless and important as it ever was. This is the story of an American in Paris, an American named Jazz. The Hellfighters. James Reese Europe was born in Alabama in 1881. He was a trained musician in violin and piano. An uncompromising and outspoken young man who demanded respect when he moved to New York City and formed the Clef Club, a society for black American musicians. It was a roster for booking and gigging musicians across the clubs of the city. In 1912, his orchestra made history by being the first all-black band to play proto-jazz at Carnegie Hall. All of the music that night was created by black American composers. By 1913 and 14, Reese had recorded some of the best examples of sort of ragtime-style arrangements, though definitely not the first. Jazz music, then spelled J-A-S-S, -S, was mostly attributed to the city of New Orleans. A mash of African and European immigrants who mashed up Africa beats and drums with European orchestral music. The original Dixieland jazz band are often attributed as having made the first jazz recording. This is the Livery Stable Blues, recorded in 1917. 
Reese's arrangements were more big band traditional style songs, sitting somewhere between lush classical orchestration and blue note music. When World War I became a reality for the USA, James Europe was commissioned as lieutenant and ordered to put together the best band he could as leader, enlisting the best musicians he could find. His regiment, the 369th, became known as the Harlem Hellfighters, and on their tour in France, where they both fought and played, they amazed the French citizens with this brilliant, complex and original music. Reese's wild arrangements baffled and inspired the French musos, which immediately made the composer's music worthy to the snobbish European musicians. They could not work out how he got these sounds. James Reese Europe graciously acknowledged this appreciation and attributed it to the fact that his musicians played their own black music. It came from their heart and soul. Individuality was king in Reese's world. The Hellfighters were in the trenches for nearly 200 days. They lost more men than any other US regiment, but they made a huge splash with the music they played. They were welcome home to the USA as heroes, and the seed of jazz had been planted in Europe by another Europe entirely. Rees died in a hospital in Boston on the 9th of May 1919 from a knife wound on his neck inflicted by his own drummer. At the time, he was the most important band leader in the United States of America, killed just a year after he and his military orchestra brought jazz to Paris. James Rees Europe was granted the first ever public funeral for a black American in the city of New York. Activist Tani Johnson said of his death, Before Jim Europe came to New York, the colored man knew nothing but Negro dances and Porter's work. All that has been changed. Jim Europe was the living open sesame to the colored porters of the city. He took them from their porters' places and raised them to positions of importance as real musicians. I think the suffering public ought to know that in Jim Europe. The race has lost a leader, a benefactor, and a true friend. The Twenties and Montmartre. For many African-American soldiers, the experience of being in a place where expectations were different from those found in America was empowering. Some thought of staying in France, and some did to try their luck in a country and culture where racial prejudice seemed to be less marked. In Paris, jazz bubbled away slowly on only a few streets in Montmartre, a triangle bordered by and made up of Boulevard de Clichy, Rue Jean-Baptiste Pigalle, and Rue Pierre Fontaine. 
Lewis Mitchell, one-time drummer with James Reese Europe and the Hellfighters, assembled a new band, the Jazz Kings, and took them back to Paris at the behest of some promoters he had met during the war. They set up a four-year residency at the Casino de Paris. It is still a dazzling and historic concert hall in the 9th arrondissement with an eclectic program spanning every musical style. Check the Circa app for upcoming shows at the Casino. Mitchell's apartment, located at 69 Rue de Clichy, became a hub for musicians. With the money from his band's residency in 1923, he opened his own jazz clubs in the Pigalle area at the foot of Montmartre. The area began getting a name for itself, the Harlem of Paris. One of the rising stars of that Harlem of Paris was a man called Eugene Bullard, another black man, not short on backstory. Georgia-born Bullard had seen unspeakable violence in his life, including the near lynching of his father. He would listen to his dad's tale of France, where he told his young son that slavery had been abolished. He told him, in Paris, you are free just to be a man like any other. Bullard stowed away as a teenager on a German freighter called the Marta Russ and made it from the USA to Aberdeen in Scotland, then eventually to London. He trained as a boxer and got some heat. A few years later, he arrived in Paris for a fight and never left. At the outbreak of the Great War, he joined the French Foreign Legion and trained, becoming one of the first African-American fighter pilots. But that's such a small part of what he did. His story is really incredible. Check out Claude Rib's book, simply titled Eugene Bullard. We'll put a link in the notes for you. Bullard was also a keen drummer. And his teacher? One Louis Mitchell of the Jazz Kings. This badass boxing, drumming, fighter pilot has also made some high-class friends and fans in Montmartre through his service and fame after the war. So many, in fact, that he soon started helping to arrange musicians for society parties and weddings. He was a keen businessman with a gift of the gab, and in Pigalle, he became the man to know. He soon started playing gigs too, behind the kit at Zelly's Royal Box Club at 16 Rue Pierrefontaine. Later, he would become the manager. And Zelly's? Zelly's was something else. It opened every evening near midnight and closed after dawn. The music was non-stop. There were telephones on the table for calls or to order champagne from the bar. Cole Porter, Pablo Picasso, Buster Keaton, Louis Brooks, and many, many, many others made good use of those telephones and of the champagne at Zelly's. And with the French franc worth almost nothing after the war, Prohibition-era Americans, with even a little money, flocked to Paris as if they were kings and queens for hot music and cheap legal liquor. In 1924, Bullard bought his own club, which he called Le Grand Duc. But the Roaring Twenties were about to be dealt a deadly blow.
Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Bricktop, The Hot Club, and World War II. Chaplin, Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Picasso, Fatty Arbuckle, Edward G. Robinson, Gloria Swanson, and many others were heading to Paris and then straight to the Grand Duc. This place was an incredible success. By 1926, Bullard had hired Ada Bricktop Smith as a hostess, a one-time Harlem nightclub singer who had been brought to Paris by Cole Porter, who had remarked on her incredible legs as she performed the Charleston for him back in New York. She was so successful at Le Duc that she opened her own club too, Chez Bricktop on the Rue Pigalle at number 62, and then many others. Not bad for a woman who once said, I'm 100% American Negro with a trigger Irish temper. She didn't mind temperamental artists either and only went for the best booking she could. She hired Sidney Bechet and Django Reinhardt, Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller and Duke Ellington. By the mid-30s, everyone knew Bricktop. New joints open all the time. One of the oldest you can still visit to see jazz is Le Bal Blomet. It opened in 1924, and back then it was called Le Bal Negre and was set up as a political base for a hopeful West Indian politician named Jean Rézard de Vouve. He quickly realized that he was a better player than a public speaker, and the place turned into another jazz club. It has, of course, closed and reopened numerous times, but you can still find it at 33 Rue Blomet in the 15th arrondissement. It's now named Le Bal Blomet. The Hot Club of France had begun too, a club founded by jazz heads Jacques Bureau, Hugues Panassi, Charles Delaunay, Jacques aux Enfants, and Elvin Dira. Its purpose was to help spread jazz to the whole of the world, including the creation of jazz festivals, a music label called Swing, and Le Jazz Hot, a monthly jazz magazine promoting regional clubs throughout France. It was a big deal. Louis Armstrong was the honorary president from 1936 until his death in 1971. That's how much of a big deal. Jazz was spreading in Europe, and it was spreading from Paris. Copycat clubs mimicking the hot clubs of France popped up all over the continent. Norway, Germany, Italy, Spain. But then, of course, something else happened. In the lead-up to the Second World War, many American jazz musicians were called up to fight, or they fled back home, including Bricktop. 
She would, in fact, live long into her 80s, opening clubs in Mexico and Italy. One of the unsung jazz heroes of history. With the outbreak of war, the wild jazz scene nearly drowned. Even before Hitler came to power, the German government had banned jazz. Later, the Nazis would ban all American music. Listening to non-German radio was a criminal offense. Ultimately, however, and somewhat ironically, Hitler settled on the idea that maybe Nazi propaganda would be better received if it was surrounded by popular music programs, jazz included. The hot club and the proponents of the music themselves even concocted a myth which they propagated in their publications stating that jazz was in fact French. It was European and could therefore be accepted into the Nazi cultural project as, quote, proof of the emergence of a new European culture under German influence. Titles of records were changed to French, and even the writers and composers got new French names. Louis Armstrong's songs were now mysteriously written by one Jean Sablon. The French took the jazz mantle, claimed it as their own, and kept it alive during the worst war in history. Not to own it, not to steal it, but to save it. By the beginning of the 1940s, nearly 30% of Parisian radio was jazz. By 42, it was of course a different story. And as France fell to the Nazis, the jig was up and jazz was once again deemed disruptive and American, which meant it didn't fly. Gypsy jazz hero Django Reinhardt was taken prisoner at the Swiss border, but was quickly released as the Nazi officer in command was a fan of his music. Jazz had become an enigma of its own in the country that had adopted it. It had become loved, hated, respected, and vilified. And after the war, the Americans who planted this blue note seed in Paris had not been able to forget her, and the ones who left returned. Miles Davis and Jazz in Postwar Paris. Jazz music, against all odds, remained in Paris. In fact, during the war, it had grown. Just look at the lineup for Paris International Jazz Festival from 1948, 49, and 50. Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Sidney Bechet, Thelonious Monk, Mary Lou Williams, and one up-and-comer named Miles Davis. When Davis arrived in 1949, he was only 22 years old. It was the first place he had ever visited outside of the United States. He claimed that Paris taught him two things. One was that he was just a man, and two, that not all white men were prejudiced. His music demanded and received a level of respect in France, which he always felt was lacking in his home country. Davis befriended painter Pablo Picasso and philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, and the three of them would sit in coffee houses and bars all night. Just imagine those conversations. 
New Orleans jazz and swing in particular had become more popular and many so-called Old Orleans joints opened shortly after the war. This is where the word discotheque comes from, by the way. Old taverns and basements spinning Dixie jazz away from the prying eyes of the squares. The City of Lights pushed jazz further and further through the 1950s. In 1958, Davis recorded the completely improvised and live soundtrack to one of the most important films which kick-started the French New Wave, Ascenseur pour l'échafaud by the great Louis Malle. American jazz was becoming so linked with France that the soundtrack to the French New Wave movement was American jazz. It was the ultimate cool. Try picturing Jean-Paul Belmondo smoking a cigarette in dark sunglasses, maybe in a fedora, without hearing jazz in your head? It's impossible. The impact Miles had on Paris and the impact the city had on him is undeniable. Before his death in 1991, he was made a Knight of the Legion of Honor, Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, France's highest accolade. It's strange to think that those little post-World War II hot clubs, discotheques, the tiny bars filled with American musicians, cemented Parisian jazz in the eyes of the world. You can still dance the night away at a few of the old post-war discos. Le Caveau de la Huchette in the Latin Quarter, for example, which became a jazz club in the late 40s. Apparently, this underground haunt inspired the Cavern Club on Matthew Street in Liverpool, where a little band called the Beatles used to play. Lionel Hampton, Sidney Bechet and Art Blakey all jammed right here in this tiny room. The Paris Jazz Festival is also a must if you can make it. It runs usually over two months, July and August, with huge names coming in from all over the world to hunk and toot their way across the center of the city. But you should definitely head to Parc Floral. They host free concerts throughout the festival, so take a blanket, a bottle of something special, and dig some cheap and tasty riffs from the grass. Or in May, head to the Saint-Germain-des-Prés Jazz Festival, which has been running since 2001, and check out hundreds of incredible world jazz performances at opulent venues on the left bank, like La Sorbonne University or the Senate Building. Though the heyday of jazz may be long gone, Paris can still put most cities to shame with what's on offer here. So let's take a look at some of the best places to shuffle the night away. Our jazz venue top five. If you're short on time and a little overwhelmed at the sheer number of clubs in Paris, we can't blame you. The Paris Jazz Club Association lists more than 130 of them. We will, of course, link you to the association in the Circa app. They publish a monthly show schedule which you can download, but right now, Let's help you out with a quick top five of some of our favorites. Number one, Sunset Sunside. Our first pick 
is two for the price of one, and it's one of the most active clubs in the city, with shows almost every single night. Founded in 1983, Sunset Sunside is a notorious double club where jazz enthusiasts mingle with locals and tourists. It's on Rue des Lombards. Just look for the blue neon jazz sign. Sunside, with soft lighting, exposed brickwork and vintage furniture, hosts cool acoustic jazz. While in the basement, looking like a Paris metro station, Sunset has a more electro and world music vibe, with each room able to hold around 100 people. The rooms regularly sell out, so get your tickets early if a big name catches your eye, or look out for some stellar tribute shows to the greats. Number two, the new morning. On the Rue des Petites Écuries, this beautiful 500 capacity loft with its minimal decor is a must for fans of jazz and blues. Somewhere between a recording studio and concert hall, New Morning allows you to get up close to some of the biggest names. It was, in fact, Prince's favorite club. From Art Blakey, who opened the club in 1981, to Lionel Hampton, Hugh Masekela, Nina Simone, Max Roach, Richie Havens, Dizzy Gillespie, and Chet Baker, you're sure to find an amazing gig happening here while you're in town. This is a truly classic and endlessly storied venue. Number three, La Bellevilloise. Spread out over three floors with multiple spaces, La Bellevilloise is a club, a concert hall, a restaurant, and an exhibition space with an eclectic program. In 1877, this building was used by a co-op of workers who offered food and supplies at a reduced rate for inhabitants of the 19th and the 20th arrondissement. In the 30s, it put on public events and discussions, and now it has become a mainstay of Paris's live music scene. Jazz fans should book a table and head there on Sundays for their very popular live jazz brunch. Number four, La Dynamo. It's worth the trip out of the bustle of the center of the city to head to La Dynamo in the suburb of Pantin. This former factory was renovated into a purpose-built concert hall and offers a weird and wonderful fusion of jazz and blues and everything else thrown in for good measure. The music played here is challenging, diverse and expertly curated in partnership with the Banlieue Bleu Association, which also hosts an annual festival at La Dynamo. Number five, Au Duc des Lombards. This is a swanky table modern vibe with not a bad seat in the house, with music every evening, often with two shows a night. Concerts at the Duke range from solo jazz pianist to French pop jazz trios. This is one of the most well-respected and famous jazz clubs in the city. It was founded in 1984 on Rue des Lombards, which hosts several other famous jazz clubs, including Le Baiser Salé and the also-mentioned Sunset Sunside. If you want to taste different flavors of jazz music, this little street is a great place to be. Just follow your ears. 
The most famous images from the City of Lights all come with a subconscious jazz score playing in our ears. Though jazz music has dropped in popularity in the United States, perhaps because rock and roll eclipsed the genre at the end of the 1960s and it never recovered, it's much more difficult to say the same about France. Miles Davis said, I'll play it first and tell you what it is later. This simple quote really speaks volumes, not only to improvising and to jazz, but also about its history and its future. Artists like Flying Lotus, Kamasi Washington, Esperanza Spalding, Nubia Garcia, and the Paris-born drummer and producer Makaya McCraven are opening the doors to new crossover audiences around the world, and those influences are tied to the city forever. Somehow, jazz music seems to endure here. And these artists are a generation of players mixing and matching styles, influence and fashion with fusion of jazz and hip-hop and house music. They certainly all play it first and tell you what it is later. Paris still calls itself the jazz capital of the world. Though the people of New Orleans may strongly disagree with that, there's no doubt that the genre has soundtracked the movie set that Paris is from the 1920s and more than any other style of music. Just as much, if not more so, than the place that gave birth to it. Thanks for listening to our Paris Jazz episode. Remember to check out the other Paris episodes in this guide for deeper dives into the city's art scene, the history of French food, and more. Whether you're heading to Paris right now, sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn all about a place we truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can get pictures, maps, and notes on everything in this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Rome, London, New York, LA, and many more. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it.